0: So we're in part three of a message series called The Vow, and if you missed the first two messages, we're taking a few weeks to help those who are not yet married but hope to be in the future, as well as those who are married, gain some tools and spiritual understanding that is going to help us have the kind of marriage that God wants us to have. Because let's be honest, everywhere we look, there are marriages that are struggling, and we don't want to settle for that, We don't want to settle for that. We believe God desires something better for our marriages. And so today we're going to talk about the vow of partnership. I wonder how many of us who are married would say that we married someone who in many ways is kind of opposite to us. I'm sure examples are beginning to flood your mind right now. A lot of people believe that opposites attract and fortunately and unfortunately for some people. While that's true, if you're married, sometimes opposites don't attract, but they also attack. And here's what I mean by that. We mentioned this earlier in this series. You, you might find yourself dating someone and, and you just love how laid back and easygoing and chill he is. You love that he's just the opposite to you, but then you get married and very quickly your opinion changes and you think, well, this guy's just a lazy bum. He needs to do something. Or perhaps you're dating and you think, oh, she's so different to me. I love how, how organized and driven she is. And then when you're married, you go, oh my gosh, this woman has planned out every second of our lives together. I'm just not ready for this. I, I need to be delivered from this. Opposites tend to attract and then later on they can often attack. In my marriage, Charlene is very different to me in so many different ways. When we're driving, she always assumes the best about people always when we're driving. I mean, if they're driving ridiculously slow, she will always say something like, you know, Jeff, I'm sure they're just some poor old person who is like terrified out of their minds to be on the road. So so be kind. Like, be kind. Don't Don't even think about honking. You know, if it's a slow person driving in the fast lane, and, and I'm, and I'm, I'm having a different perspective. She'll say, well, maybe they're, they're about to, to make a left turn in the next moment or two, and then you're going to feel really stupid for being upset about this. I generally am somewhat less charitable in my assessment of other drivers uh, in real time. That's all I'm going to say about that. Uh, when, it, when it gets later at night, uh, for me, the later it gets, the more my mind begins to shut down. I become progressively useless on a mental level as it gets later and later in the evening. And so what will happen in our house is we'll, we'll, we'll put the kids to bed and I'll, I'll say to Sarah, hey, well, what, what do you wanna do? Anything you wanna talk about? Or, or you know, anything we, we need to work on or anything? No, no, I just wanna watch TV. Let's just, let's just hang out together. Oh, okay, babe, sounds good. And so we do that two hours, go to bed. And then as soon as the light turns off, her brain turns on. I mean, as soon as the light goes off, she'll be like, you know, I was thinking we really need to plan a summer vacation. I mean, time is coming up quick and we think we need to start planning this through. I mean, what, do you th- what are you thinking as far as this goes? And, and I'm thinking, where was this for the last two, two and a half hours? What in the world is going on? She's just the complete opposite to me. She's ready to have an in-depth discussion in the dark. She hates conflict and does her best to avoid it. I, I'm the polar opposite. If I even sense conflict, I'm like, let's poke it with a stick and see what happens. Let's just see what, what goes on there. And, and on and on and on I could go. We, we are opposites in so many ways. But that's really a good thing. Because if, if we were completely identical, then one of us would be unnecessary. Unnecessary. And God actually uses our differences to enhance and strengthen our relationship and make us more like Jesus. The problem is that Satan wants to use those same differences to divide us. And that's why today we're going to talk about the vow of partnership in our marriages. If you were with us for week number one, we learned that God is our one, our spouse is our two. Vow number one, I put it on your outlines, was I promise that God will be my first priority and my spouse will be my second. Week number two, last week we talked about the vow of pursuit. I promise to pursue my two. Today for week number three, our vow of partnership is this. You can write this down. Our marriage will be about we and not about me. Our marriage will be about we and not about me. Whenever we enter into the covenant relationship of marriage, we're saying from this moment on, Life is not about me, 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 me. It's about we. It's about us serving and glorifying God together. That's what it's all about. We're gonna take this vow from the same verse we've looked at over the last couple of weeks, the same verse we're gonna use again next week. It's Genesis 2.24 on your outlines, and it says, therefore a man shall leave his mother and father and be joined, made one with his wife, and they shall become one one flesh, and in a moment I'm gonna show you where Jesus actually quoted this exact verse and then added some additional truth to it. But before we do that, I I just want to acknowledge whenever you're you're teaching on this sort of stuff and you're teaching through a series like this, I understand that there are people in our church family and there are people who are gonna listen and watch this message online who have experienced the, the pain and the brokenness of divorce. And I know that there are many who have been through that and would say, it's not what I wanted, And I would have done anything to avoid it from happening. And I also know there's some who would say, you know what, I did some stupid things and I was at fault in many ways. And I want you to understand that my heart and motivation in sharing on this sort of stuff is, is not trying to heap guilt or condemnation on anybody for things that have happened in the past, but to help us build a foundation for the marriages we have and for those of us who are not married yet who will be in the future to help us build marriages that are not only going to last, but are going to honor God and impact generations to come. And I understand that we can't change the past, but we have to be honest about what the scriptures teach us right now, right now. This is what Jesus said as he quoted from Genesis. It's on your outlines too. In Matthew 19, Jesus said, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning said, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his flesh, and the two shall become one flesh. And then Jesus adds, So then, they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Let not man separate. So how in the world can we actually live this out in a world of selfishness and and so much divorce and so much pain? So, Let's start with a foundational understanding of what marriage actually is. You know, so often people will say, well, marriage is it's just a piece of paper, implying that, that marriage is just a contract. It's just a form that the justice of the peace or a pastor or a judge will sign. But what we need to understand is that marriage is not a contract. Marriage is actually a covenant before a holy God. And there's a big, big difference between a contract and a covenant. So write this down and we'll talk about it some more. Marriage is not a contract, it's a covenant. It's not a contract, it's a covenant. Let's look at one of the big differences, one of the big differences. What is a contract based on? A contract is actually based on, when you think about it, Mutual distrust, mutual distrust. In other words, since I don't know you well enough or trust you enough to take you at your word, I'm gonna make you sign a piece of paper to say that you're gonna live up to your end of the deal. A contract essentially says, I'm in as far as you're in. I don't trust you fully, so I'm gonna have you sign this contract which will legally require you to be faithful so that if you're not faithful, I'll have legal recourse against you. This is how rental properties work. You always have a contract, and the reason is that a lot of the time you don't know who these people are. They have to pay. If they don't pay, they can't stay. And if you don't do your part to to keep the house in adequate condition for them as the landlord, then they have legal recourse against you because you don't actually fully trust each other. It's a contract ultimately based on mutual distrust. A covenant, though, is very, very different, completely different. A covenant isn't based on mutual distrust. Write this down. A covenant is based on mutual commitment. Mutual commitment. A covenant says we're both in 100% with every part of our being. The Hebrew word for covenant is the word berith, and it literally means a cutting. It refers to a a blood covenant. If you were with us for a Genesis study, you might recall the covenant that God made with Abraham in Genesis 15. In the days of the Old Testament, a covenant would generally require the shedding of blood. There would be an animal or animals who would be cut in two. There were times in the Old Testament when marriage ceremonies would include the husband and wife standing before a rabbi or priest and, and both parties would cut their hands with a knife so that they would bleed, and then they would put their palms against each other, and the the rabbi or priest would tie a cord around the hands while their blood mixed together. I know it's super emo, right? You're picturing like a a goth teen being like, that is so romantic, man. But they would do this, and then in in, in the book of Leviticus, God declares that the life of a person is in their blood. So this, this ritual as their blood mixed together would represent and symbolize their two lives becoming one. Two separate beings becoming one flesh. In God's design for marriage, these are two central massive principles. In God's design for marriage, the first principle is that two individuals enter into a covenant commitment to each other. They enter into a covenant commitment to each other. And then secondly, as they do that, their individual identities are surpassed by a new singular unified identity that they have as a married couple. That's God's design for marriage. And I just want to ask you, do you do you see how radically different that is to the world's idea of marriage, to the world's idea of relationships? Because the world preaches That in any relationship, you should never give up any of your identity. Always be completely who you are. We we use terms to make it sound less selfish, like stay true to yourself. We use that today as code for saying don't change anything about yourself because you're absolutely perfect just the way you are. That's just a nice way of saying I'm not going to compromise. I'm not going to change in any way for my spouse At all, because it's all about me. I'm as good as it gets already. I don't need to change. I don't need to grow. I'm awesome. Deal with it. That's what the world says. And they they market that under the idea of independence and being true to yourself, as we said. Secondly, in the world, the world teaches that because it's all about you, because you don't need to change, because it's all about you, if you ever feel like you're not getting what you should out of the deal, you can just leave because it's just a contract. The feelings seem to be gone, Eh, you can just leave. You get better feelings from somebody else other than your spouse, Eh, you can just leave. God's plan is so much different, and it's so much better. Now what I'm about to say is gonna sound really weird and old fashioned, and I know you're thinking, don't worry Jeff, you're way past that point already. But if you want normal, you can have normal. But when I look around at what a normal relationship is I see most quote-unquote normal relationships filled with hurt mistrust adultery divorce pain and and I don't know about you but I don't want normal I don't want normal if you want something that most people don't have you have to do things that most people don't do And so we're gonna talk about a different path to the one that most of the world is taking. And again, my goal is not to heap guilt and shame on anyone. My goal is to be honest about what God's word says and what God's plan is. And if your life didn't go this way, don't let regret and embarrassment stop you from encouraging your children to pursue God's best for them. Don't let it stop you from encouraging them to pursue God's best. Here's what happens today, though. People do married things before they get married, right? That's the most PG way I can put that. That's, it's the norm. People hook up through apps like Tinder. They turn sex into a, a meaningless commodity, and, and God's plan is the total opposite. God's plan has sex taking place only in marriage as a sacred and amazing gift shared between a husband and a wife, it's been the norm for a few decades now for people to say, hey, you know what, we, 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 we like each other. I, I, I think we kind of love each other. Uh, let's save some money and move in together. Now, long ago when, when dinosaurs ruled the earth, that was something that only married people used to do. But now it's, here's my toothbrush, that's your toothbrush. We'll buy a sofa, we'll buy a coffee table, we'll, we'll do... Married things. We'll do married things to keep it PG-13. But then what happens is, uh, I don't really like you anymore. You're, you're sure looking at that other guy a lot. Uh, you talk too much. So, okay, I'll, I'll take the coffee table. You take the sofa. I'll take my toothbrush and we'll, we'll go our separate ways. I'll, I'll find another roommate. But what happens is, if I can just be, be blunt and exaggerate a little bit for effect, you, you might do that with two people, three people, five people. 12 people, you do married things and basically you're pretending to be married and then when it doesn't work out, you're practicing divorce. You're practicing divorce. You're pretending and doing married things and then you essentially do what divorced people do which is split up and move on down the road and try to start over. And you learn this pattern and you train yourself to leave whenever things start getting challenging in the relationship. It becomes your default behavior. So it's no wonder then that tragically, the first time many marriages start to struggle, people fall back on what they've been practicing. They fall back on their training, and and, and when we find ourselves in a very real difficult situation in marriage, we just go back to the habit that we've developed because we've been practicing, pretending to be married, practicing divorce. That's why we don't enter into a contract. That's why when we get married, we don't say, "Uh, I'm in as far as you're in, as long as you are. It's a holy covenant. I'm in 100%. From this day forward, for better or worse, richer or poorer, in sickness, in health, forsaking all others, I'll be faithful to you as long as we both shall live. So help me God in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So understand that we're not talking about a 50-50 arrangement. That's not what marriage is. It's not, I'm in it as as long as you're in it. I'm in it as far as you're in it. It's 100%. It's never dividing everything in half. It's not saying, let's divide all the responsibilities in half, and as long as you handle yours and I handle mine, then, then I'm in this. It's giving everything you've got. It's not do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That's not what marriage is. Marriage is do unto others as the Lord has done unto you as the Lord has done unto you. He gave his life, and so that's what we do for one another in the context of marriage. Jesus said it like this in John 13. I put it on your outlines. He said, love one another as I have loved you. Love one another as you would like to be loved? No, as I have loved you. That's the model, that's the example, it's Jesus. So I wanna shift gears for a moment and just talk some more about the partnership of marriage. It's till death do us part, it's we, it's not me. But what is a covenant partnership really all about? And I wanna summarize it with this statement. You can write this down. A covenant marriage consists of godly leadership and mutual submission. It's godly leadership and mutual submission. Now the moment I say the word submission, Some people get really, really tense, really, really tense. And that's because that term has been misused. It's been abused a lot, unfortunately. But what I want you to notice is that I said mutual submission. When the Apostle Paul talks about marriage, he talks about submitting to one another. In Ephesians 5.21, he tells us what to do. He says that we are to submit to one another in the fear of God. In other words, because we revere Christ, because we wanna honor Jesus, we should submit to one another in our marriages. That means that it is a way to honor Jesus. That's what it's saying. If you wanna honor Jesus and bless God in your marriage, submit to one another. That's what it's saying. So if I were to ask you in your marriage, those of you who are married, if you're the more passive or more dominant person in your relationship, like you to think about that and think which one you are. Now, if your first thought is, I wonder what my spouse would say, you're the passive one, okay? You're the passive one. If your first thought was, I should ask them, you're the passive one. I'm the more dominant one in our marriage. I'm, I'm more outspoken, more comfortable with conflict, but I want you to understand that Charlene and I mutually submit to each other. I would be I'd be the dumbest man alive if I didn't try to leverage and maximize her unique gifts, talents, and passions that she brings into our relationship and our family. I value her opinion more than any other person on earth. She's got discernment about people. She's gracious and patient. She's a lot of things that I am not so much naturally of. When we're making decisions, I don't move forward with something if Charlene isn't comfortable with it. If she's got a check in her spirit or she's just not convinced, we're not, we're not going to move forward. We're going to pray on it some more. We're going to talk about it some more. We're going to think about it some more because we mutually submit to one another. And after telling us to submit to one another, Paul goes on in Ephesians 5. It's also in your outlines. And he says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. So scripture is clear that the husband is the leader of the family, and as the church submits to Jesus, so also wives are to submit to their husbands. When we read this, I know a lot of people immediately might have a sense of pain because, again, this has been abused a lot, and I just wanna speak to that for a minute. The word submission gets a really, really bad rap and it's sad because it's intended to be something beautiful and it's a concept that originated within the Trinity. Just think about this. What what did Jesus do when he was on the earth in his incarnate state? He submitted himself to his heavenly father. He submitted himself to his heavenly father, laid down his life for us even as he's praying On the night of his arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is saying, if there's any other way for this to be done, take this cup from me. And then he says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He's perfectly submitted to the Father. And that's really important because that's the model for us to understand that submission is not about acknowledging weakness. Submission is a beautiful thing acknowledging the role that God wants you to play in a specific situation and that's what Jesus did. Jesus never asks us to do anything that he hasn't done himself ever. He submitted to the father and he's the example there. This is God's plan for the family that wives would submit to their husbands. Now obviously a man can abuse that and you should not stay in a situation where you're experiencing abuse. But when it comes to simply dealing with a man's frailties and failings, that he might make some bad decisions sometimes, it's worth remembering that what a wife is called to do is to ultimately honor God, even over her husband. So God is not coming to wives and saying, well, you know, your husband made a dumb decision and you should have just overruled him. God is looking at wives and he's saying, did you let your husband lead? Did you encourage him to do that? Because that was your role. And then he's looking at the husband to say, did you take care of your role? God is never asking us to fulfill somebody else's role. He's not handing out rewards to us for doing somebody else's task or taking somebody else's job. What I'm saying is that when a man is hard to follow, It's worth remembering that you're ultimately doing it because you're following God. And what God has asked you to do in this moment and this situation is to follow your husband. You're following God by following your husband in that moment. Again, if your husband asks you to rob a bank or to do something sinful, you do not have to submit to him. I literally just saw a news article about a, a woman who went on a first date with a guy she met online. I don't know if any of you saw this. And she had a great first date but by the end of the date, she was being held at gunpoint and used as the getaway driver in a bank robbery. That's a bad first date, right? Or a great story about how you met. I mean, it really really could go either way. So if your husband is asking you to help him rob a bank, if he's helping you to do something sinful, you obey God, not your husband in that situation. But other than sin, other than abuse-related situations, you should submit to him because you're honoring God by doing that. And again, I realize there are many marriages where that's not easy to do. I'm not saying it's easy to do. Unfortunately, that's the reality. And that's why I say to the men, do not lord your authority over your wife. Do not lord your authority over your wife. It should be an incredibly, incredibly rare thing where you would ever play the card hey, God asked me to lead the family and this is what I think the Lord wants us to do. That's not a card that you play just to do what you wanna do. It's not a card you play to watch the movie that you wanna watch over the one that she wants to watch. I honestly can't remember the last time that ever happened in my relationship with Charlene because generally when you're mutually submitted to one another, you're just not gonna have to do that a whole lot. you know. And it's highly unlikely that the Lord is telling you vacation somewhere different to where your wife wants to go. I think the Lord is like, I'm staying out of this. You guys just need to figure this out. Don't bring me into the situation right here. It's not something you should have to go to very, very often, almost never, if you're actually walking in mutual submission to each other. So right after Paul instructs wives to submit to their husbands, he says also on your outlines, husbands love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and we always say this what did Jesus do for the church how did he love the church he laid down his life for the church that's what he did that's how we're to love our wives our leadership of our families is meant to reflect the heart of Jesus the way Jesus has loved us is the model for how we are to love our wives and our families and I know that you might feel a million miles away from that I know that I know that but God will slowly get us closer to that goal if we let him We're all on a journey, and the most important part is not getting there because you're honestly never going to fully get there on this side of eternity. But what is important is having the right destination in your marriage and your family, making sure that you're headed in the right direction, knowing what you're aiming for. If you're aiming for the right thing, if you're aiming to lead and love like Jesus, you're going to see some incredible things happen in your family if that's where your target is, if that's what you're aiming for. But this is why both husbands and wives need to have grace for one another. I know your husband isn't Jesus. I know your wife isn't Jesus. That's why you need grace for each other. And ladies, to tell you something you already know, your husband is not always going to get it right. He's going to make some decisions that are completely wrong and you're going to do the same thing. But unless it's abuse or sin, you want to err on the side of allowing him to lead you and your family. Again, God is concerned with whether or not you're living out your calling and your part in the marriage, not your husband's. So let me talk to the men again for a minute, because the sad truth is that even in the church at large today, there are a lot of men just abdicating leadership of their families, passively stepping back rather than stepping up. And what I just want to remind us is that men, you're called to lead, you're called to lead. We say this a lot about God's calling on our lives. You're not called because you're qualified. You're qualified because you're called. God's plan is that as men, we would feel overwhelmed by the task and then have to ask our heavenly father for help. And as we do that, as we walk with him, we grow in our relationship with him. If you feel completely inadequate, it's it's because you are on your own. You're completely unqualified. You're completely inadequate. But if you walk through it with the Lord, you have everything you need. You're more than enough, more than equipped as long as you do it with the Lord. That's his plan and that's his design. So before you stress out over leading your family, I just wanna let you know, men, that leading doesn't mean that you make all the decisions. Doesn't mean that. That's a dictatorship, that's not leadership. Leading your family means you set the tone and the direction for your family. That's what you do. We're called to set the spiritual tone in our family. How do we treat each other? How do we talk to each other? How do we handle conflict? How quickly do we apologize? Do we apologize? These are things that we're responsible for setting the example and setting the tone in our families. When we don't know what to do, do we pray about it? Are we going to actually do that? That's on us. So write this down. Husbands are called to set the tone and direction of their families. The tone and direction. And that means you don't have to know everything. You don't have to know the answer for every question. You don't have to make every decision. But you do have to set the tone for your family, the spiritual direction. Our wives contribute all day long in in massive and amazing ways, but we co-lead and co-direct our children together into living relationships with God. We lead with honor together. We lead with dignity. We lead by serving first. But if I'm going into battle and I want to lead other people into battle I've got to be the first one to go in. I've got to be on the front line. I can't be like, you can do it. The battle's over there. Get, get over there. Go take care of business. In my home as a husband, I've got to try and do the same thing. I've got to aim for the same thing. I've got to try and be the lead servant. I've got to try and be someone that my wife is happy to lead with, to lead beside. You know, when I look back at my marriage to Charlene, at our marriage, when I look back at, uh, at how we met where we met, getting engaged at 19, married at 20, we six kids, homeschool, church planning, moving countries. I just cannot believe, I really cannot believe how good God was in bringing us together because we've, we've helped and blessed each other in ways that we were not even considering when we got married. They weren't even on our radar at all. We've been through things that we never thought we'd have to face and we can't even say, hey, we both chose well. We just had such great insight when we married each other. We had no idea what we were doing. No idea. We're just kids. The only thing that we had going for us is that both of us really, really love Jesus. We both really, really love Jesus, and, and we still do, and we always will. And when I look back, I'm so grateful, though, for the vision of marriage we had from the word of God and, and from the church. I was just thinking about this. You know, when... When most people get married who don't know the Lord, their idea of what marriage is 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 what they've seen growing up and what they see in pop culture on TV and movies. Like, Like that's it. And if you grew up in the church, we take that for granted. We don't understand that not everybody has that. Not everybody has examples of healthy couples to look to. Not everybody has grown up and had the chance to be a part of a church where they talk about marriage and what a marriage should look like and how to solve conflict. And we're so grateful that we had that growing up. And having that vision is the reason we've been able to build a life together and serve the Lord together side by side for a lot of years now. And I know that you might hear that and think, well, well, that, that's great, Jeff. I'm so happy for you. It must be awesome to just find the right person when you're a teenager and have it work out. It must be must be so great to have a, a nice, submissive little wife who just lets you lead and everything comes together and, and smoothly and your, your kids love Jesus. That's so great, but that's not my life, Jeff. That's not reality for me. I promise you our schedules are, are every bit uh, as difficult as yours. You're busy. We're just as busy. I promise you Satan attacks us just as much as he attacks you. I promise you that my flesh is just as vulnerable to temptation as yours is. I've sinned against God, Charlene sinned against God. We've hurt each other, we've, we've let each other down. We've faced family issues, we faced serious health issues. We're dealing with multiple significant personal challenges in our family right now. We're in ministry with the church and while our lives are blessed, they're, they're not easy. Our marriage isn't good because our life is easy. There's no connection between those two things. Our saving grace, time and time again, I don't know how else to say this, is that we bow to Jesus, both of us. We bow to Jesus. We both submit to the authority of God's word and God's spirit, regardless of how we feel or regardless of what we want. At the end of the day, we're both genuinely submitted to the Lord. He calls the shots. And so in those moments when we don't want to be submitted to the other person, our flesh is getting in the way, we're still submitted to the Lord. And when the Holy Spirit says, hey, 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 you need to fix this, you were wrong, go make that right, we do everything we can to do that. That's our saving grace, is that we're submitted to the Lord. What defines how we act in our marriage is not what seems good to us. If that's how we were making decisions, I I really don't think we would have made it as a family, as a couple. We wouldn't be here together right now. If we just did what seemed good and right to us in the moment, we'd we'd be done. But the grace of God is that we both submit to him and he leads us and he guides us and he keeps us together and he heals, he restores, he blesses, he gives grace. He does all of those things. What I'm about to say might make somebody mad, but it's true. Your marriage will be as good as both of you decide it will be, period. I'll say it again. Your marriage will be as good as both of you decide it will be. Your marriage is not good or bad because of your job, because of your kids, because of who your in-laws are or who your extended family is. That, That is not why your marriage is doing well or doing poorly. It is doing well or doing poorly based on what you have decided it will be. comes down to the two people in the marriage. And I understand that some of you are in a place where one of you isn't all in. You can't change that person. But remember, marriage is not a contract. It's a covenant. But if any couple will come together and say together, hey, we want to honor God together, you can have a blessed and special marriage and relationship. But it will never be easy. It'll never be easy. It'll always be a choice. It'll always take work. It'll always mean putting God first. It will always mean dying to yourself. It will always mean pursuing one another. It will always mean being about we instead of about me. And I can promise you there will be times when you won't feel like it. I don't feel like loving. I don't feel like forgiving. I don't feel like working at this. I don't feel like this is where I should be. Listen to me. This is profound. Get over your stupid feelings. Get over your stupid feelings. There is no other area of life where you can get away with saying, I don't feel like it, so I'm not going to do it. I don't feel like feeding the baby today. I don't feel like going to work today. Hope you don't feel like eating if you don't feel like going to work. I don't feel like paying taxes. Hope you feel like going to prison. You have to, in those situations, get over your feelings. And our society, again, is just moving in the opposite direction. Our our society is telling all of us over and over again, elevate your feelings. They are the ultimate guide of truth. Listen to your heart. What does the Bible say about the heart? It's wicked. Desperately evil, deceitful above all things. That's what the Bible says about the heart. And one of the key differences between a mature person, not even a mature Christian and an immature Christian, just a mature person and an immature person. A mature person understands that our emotions lie to us all the time. All the time. There is no relationship between truth and how we feel. None at all. An immature person believes that how they feel is telling them what the truth is. And it's an absolute train wreck to live that way. We need to understand that our marriage is not measured by our feelings. Our marriage is measured by our commitment. We're in a covenant with one another. And you might say, I'm, but I'm not happy, Jeff. We fell out of love. I understand, and I don't, I don't want to belittle that. I don't want to pretend that doesn't suck, because I'm sure it does. I don't want to say that being around that person might not be incredibly difficult. Jeff, you don't understand. You don't understand. You're right. I don't. I know. I've, I've seen it, and it can be incredibly difficult. But just because you don't feel love doesn't mean you throw in the towel. Let me say it this way getting divorced because you ran out of love is like selling your car because you ran out of gas. What do you do when you run out of gas? You fill it back up. You fill it back up. What do you do when you run out of love? When you're in a covenant, you choose to fill it back up. You fill it back up because this isn't about me. This isn't about me, it's about we. And when I say fill it back up, I don't mean you stand there and you tell them, fill it back up. I mean you fill them back up. It's a covenant, a mutual commitment before a holy God. And I know that what I'm about to say isn't true all of the time, but I'll tell you it's true a lot of the time. And almost always when both people in a marriage love Jesus. Before your marriage and early on in your marriage, you know, you hear messages like this and you're automatically concerned that you're gonna be the one who has to be gracious to your spouse, right? This is what you think. You hear this and you think, oh, this is a hard teaching because, man, I'm going to have to love my spouse even when they're being a total idiot. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, you're really concerned that, that, that you're going to be the one who's going to have to give 100% when they're not doing it. When we're not married or we're early on in a marriage, our concern is that we're going to get the short end of the stick. But when you both love Jesus, here's what I can almost guarantee you. You will be shocked and humbled by how many times you're going to need the grace of your spouse over the course of your marriage. You will be shocked and humbled by the times that they will carry you. I don't care who you are or how godly you think you are. And when you realize that, when you begin to see that, you will be so grateful for God's design of marriage. When you're in it or when you look back and you realize, oh man, they, they were doing 98% in that stretch. I was offering almost nothing. Because either you had an attitude problem or, or you were just crushed by some life situation that just taken the wind out of your sails. And when you realize that, you'll say, I'm so glad our marriage is based on a covenant and not on a contract. Because they would have had valid reason to leave if this was a contract because they were doing most of the work for that stretch. You know, we can be united as a couple or we can become untied as a couple. There's only one tiny difference between those two words. It's where you place the I, where you move the I. If the I is in the right place, you're united. If the I, if I am in the wrong place, you become untied. The marriage begins to fall apart. So the question is, where do I need to be? I need to be submitted to Jesus, serving my spouse, laying down my life for them. I cannot control what they do. I cannot say the solution to fixing our marriage is you submitting to me, you laying down your life for me. I can't control them, but I can serve them with all my heart as we mutually submit to one another. And when we both put ourselves in the right place with the help of God, hey, then we're going to be united in a marriage that honors God. We're going to be in a covenant marriage, the kind that's a blessing to each other. And so with that, let's pray together. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Father, thank you so much as always for the grace of your word. Thank you for the wisdom that's in your word. And thank you that as we look around us and and we see marriages in the world, seemingly everywhere that are falling apart, that are full of pain, full of hurt, full of mistrust, full of anxiety, divorce, adultery, all these things. Lord, thank you that you lay out a better way, a better way. And as always, the better way is putting you at the center. The better way is living for you, loving you, being led by you. Father, we just acknowledge that that none of us can be the spouse that our spouse needs without the power of your Spirit on us, Lord. And so we just ask, uh, every single one of us that are married right now, Lord, we ask that you would fill us, that you would empower us again to minister to our spouses, to be a blessing to them by meeting the needs that you know they have that we don't know they have, that they might not even know they have. But Lord, you know. So would you just give us fresh ears to hear and eyes to see in our marriage how we can serve, how we can love each other better. How we can lay down our lives more gladly and graciously for our spouse. Father, thank you for the gift of marriage. Thank you for the blessing that it is, Lord. I pray a blessing of unity on every marriage represented in this room, every future marriage represented in this room, Lord. Thank you that you care about this stuff because you're a good father. You didn't just leave us on our own, but you gave us your word to instruct us and you gave us your spirit to guide us in the moment. So help us to listen, Lord. Help us to listen. Father, I pray right now if there's anything that you want to say to us, anything you want us to hear, just speak, Lord. Help us to hear Jesus.